Hey everyone, this is Jay, the producer. Thanks for listening to the Melissa Hall full interview. Uh, Make sure to check our other episodes as well. Episode 9 just dropped today, and we've got a great interview coming up with Tammy Morales next week. So pay attention, thanks for listening, and we couldn't do this without your support. All right, well, that's it for our big news breakdown. And now we're going to get right on into our interview with another city council candidate from Seattle City Council. It is me and Troy. Hi. And Bill. Hello. And we've got Corn acting as our producer and our two studio dogs, Virgil and Homer. And we are sitting down with Melissa Hall, who's running for District 6, right? Yes. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Wonderful. Awesome. Before we begin, I just want to say, can I tell you that your campaign swag is on (laughs) point? (laughs) I have little dog vests in my car. So um, Melissa doesn't want to do yard signs because of waste and and being conscious of the environment. So they did uh, a little little reflective safety vest for your dog. And I have two of them in my car for my two dogs. And, And for your cat. And for myself. (laughs) <laughs> actually she has one on right now <laughs> she does she does well we are gonna i uh, just get started just quick flow we're gonna just start asking some tough questions about yourself and then we want to jump into some discussions about policy uh if there's ever anything you want to elaborate on obviously take all the time you need so this is what this is about you getting your platform out there so let's start pretty easy what got you into politics um well mike o'brien decided not to run for re-election Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I was walking down the street with my wife and I was complaining about the fact that there wasn't really anyone I wanted to vote for with Mike O'Brien dropped out. And she said, Melissa, you should run. And my immediate response was, I'm electable, unelectable. And she said, well, Melissa, we live in Seattle now. And then I started crying. And then I went home and looked up a bunch of election law stuff. And here we are now. Awesome. I gotcha. Yeah. All right. So what are some of your hobbies? What do you what do you do for fun? Well, I play well, mostly now I have a two year old. So the two year old is what I do when I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also play role playing games when I get a chance. I'm an avid reader. I think everybody says that, but it's true. And um Kind of what I do for fun, other people knit. I like writing things like organizational bylaws. That's me. I do that. (laughs) And just so the audience knows, uh, you're an attorney, correct? That's true. I I just wanted to say, too, that is literally what Sarah does (laughs) for fun, for organizations that don't ask for it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, fortunately, I've been involved with roller derby since 2011, so it gives me lots of opportunities to do things like write organizational bylaws, file for nonprofit status, and (laughs) yeah. That's, That's fantastic. Awesome. So you're a, you're an attorney, and then you um, so you work with the Rat City Roller. Uh, n- no, I don't work with Rat City. I work with three other leagues. I worked with Rainier. Um, mostly, I work with something called PFM Roller Derby, which just takes okay. skaters from like barely on skates to where they're ready to league up. Huh. Okay. Um, I'm a board member with them. Oh wow! Oh, yeah. That's cool. really cool. Oh, How yeah. neat! <laughs> and what's your uh, favorite role playing game to cool down with? Uh, right now, I understand right how that works. Right now, <laughs> it is probably um, Monster Hearts. And I have to ask also, what is your favorite, either fiction or nonfiction, that you've read recently? Well, let me just say my favorite of all time because <laughs> it's the biggest part of our collection. We have. Basically, all of Pratchett, except for the 
<laughs> Tiffany Aiken books. So um, I read a lot of different fiction, but when the thing that I come back to, the like, you know, sit in your pajamas and like get right with the world stuff, always yeah. Pratchett. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I it, could you, for folks who are listening, and yeah. there may be people who are hyper nerds like I am because I, you know, I'm, I make video games for a living and I am, I'm, I'm steeped in nerd culture, but Pratchett. Uh, Sir Terry Pratchett, unfortunately has since deceased, but he wrote a bunch of books that were a parody based in a place called Discworld. And yeah. there was a documentary later about it called Behind the Curve <laughs> on Netflix. Just kidding. That was about flat earthers. <laughs> 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 Equally as delightful. Um, but they really did just recently do a Pratchett book. Which one was it? Oh, Good Omens. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. It was Neil Gaiman and, and Terry Pratchett. People forget like both of them wrote it. it. Yeah, yeah they, they did. Both of them did write <laughs> it. And I've been watching and... Um, I, I, have you been watching this? Yeah. yeah. I, what do you think? It's obvious who's who. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. So for uh, you, how long have you lived in Seattle? Uh, we moved in 2015 okay. uh, when um, Obergefell, the gay marriage decision came down. We went and got a marriage license that day oh, in wow. Virginia. And then we got married in August of that year. Uh, we left the wedding ceremony, picked up the dog and drove to Seattle as our honeymoon. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. Extended honeymoon. I like yeah. it. So if you had to pick one of my big things, I love food. I love to eat. Um, where is your favorite place to eat in Seattle so far? Um, ooh. Okay. Roxy. It's, it's not fancy, but it's easily the place we eat the most often. I love eating breakfast out. And it's like this great like mm. deli mashup diner place. And it's just, it's comfort food. Oh, I'm kind of with you. I actually eat breakfast at all hours of the day. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what restaurant. Yeah. I'm like, I get a couple eggs, smash yeah. browns. Let's do this. I yeah. do. No I mean, for Bill. I do think that that's one thing D6 has. Like, we have great diners. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. There's Roxy's. There's North Star. North Star uh, is yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. I need to check and see if... Uh, Beth's is inside the district because it's like near the line. <laughs> They're like, come on, check their address on the yeah. website. Like, yeah. What district are you in? Yeah. Uh, so you have a dog I saw. Yeah, what yeah. kind of dog? I have an 11 week old Shiba Inu puppy. Oh, <gasps> yeah. So smart, so trouble. Oh, yeah. So stubborn. We had an 11 year old Shiba Inu who unfortunately died when the baby was three months old. Aww. So it's been. A long time. I basically started like emailing breeders like later that week because I just <laughs> needed to know there would be dog in my future. Yes, because comfort dog. Yes, comfort dog. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I couldn't have dog for a while. Obviously, you can't have puppy and baby. No, oh, God. Yeah. no. But, <laughs> just like, two babies yeah. at that point. <laughs> but she's a handful. She's adorable, and she is full of teeth and claw. <laughs> so yeah. so covered cute. comfort food and covered comfort dogs, dog. and we'll get, we'll get the sun on yeah. the comforts. Yeah. yeah, and I have a. So you touched on something a little bit earlier when we were talking about like what got you into politics. You said like, you know, someone like me is I'm an electable. So uh -huh. talk to us a little bit more about that. How how has your personal struggle impacted your politics or empowered you in politics? Well, here's the thing. I am from Tallahassee, Florida, mm -hmm. which is a very southern town, even though people don't think of Florida as a southern place. And it became really clear that you can be in the closet and be in politics or you cannot. And you get to be a bureaucrat and 
I made my choice. I was a bureaucrat for 15 years. I've done a lot of different things in that role. I've dealt with legal leaking sewers underneath Birmingham, Alabama. I figured out where to put grocery stores. Um, I worked as part of the Florida's emergency response team. But I was, it was with the understanding that I could never run for office. And because I was unelectable, I also could never be appointed to office. It was a limitation on my career that I just had to accept as part of the cost of doing business as somebody who worked in government in the South. Um, and it was amazing how deeply I internalized that limitation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm, um, what, what you share um, resonates with me, uh, especially I, so I worked for about, I want to say three to four months providing uh, through the uh, Red Cross, providing uh, care and, and doing logistics for the Red Cross for Hurricanes, Reed and Katrina. And it was a struggle because you can't be out. Mm -hmm. it, it's really, you are talking about marginalized. Yeah. You, your choice. It's interesting for you to say, like, your choice is to be like an elected official or a bureaucrat. Like, yeah. you want to, you want to help, you want to care, you want to make a difference. Yeah, and I mean, mass care is wonderful, but mass care probably has the most religious organizations involved oh. in it, and it is probably the most constrained as a result. I worked inside the EOC as a geographer, which meant that like things were a little different for me. One of the things I learned was I needed to cuss within the first two minutes of meeting somebody new. And just for clarification, AOC? Uh-huh, the EOC, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the, the EOC? Oh, sorry, sorry. The Emergency Operations Center is the central nexus point for state disasters in Florida. So I just, I would just add, so you have a hobby that you like to form bylaws, write bylaws, <laughs> but you seem, you appear, based on experience, to have uh, a pretty deep experience in policy crafting and execution. Um, hmm. <clears throat> Well, any policy that comes out of a governmental organization always has a lot of parents. Yeah. And if you're mm -hmm. smart, you always make sure that it's the appointed person who believes that it's their policy. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trick to getting legislation passed, everybody. Sort of like running a campaign. I get it. <laughs> so I can't say that I've really like, done a lot of policy. I've okay. been in organizations where policy is an issue. <laughs> And <laughs> now you're getting too yeah. lawyerly. Yeah. You're, getting, you're getting too lawyerly. Here. Yeah. Okay. But um, yeah. <laughs> to get back to why you have to cuss, emergency operations centers are full of uh, former firefighters and police officers. Yeah. And like I said, this is a southern city. So they would be uncomfortable around me until the first time they heard me cuss. You because, broke the seal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the thing. It brings comfort. It's yeah, like a thing. It's that like familiarity camaraderie thing. Yes. Sure. Then, then you weren't, uh, you know, a little lady. Yeah. You were like, no, I'm in it. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm fighting with you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was very important. Yeah. <laughs> you got to show like me it. your salt crust, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like, exactly. Make sure yeah. they know that. Yeah. And Where are the shovels at, mm -hmm. mother? So for you personally, then, uh, this is a, a question I love asking people because it's such a diverse series of answers. But so what do you believe the role of government is? What do you believe? Like, so you're running for city council, uh, whether it's local, state or federal. What overall, when you think about this concept, this big old concept of government, what does that mean to you? For me, government is a way of dealing with the reality that 
we can't take care of everybody by ourselves. We need to collectivize and we need systems in order to take care of the people that are not going to be taken care of by cultural systems. And it's a way to have sort of a direct input on our culture because social power, to my mind, is always greater than governmental power. However, governmental power gives us some control over what those social norms and where those social power um, centers are directed. Okay, interesting. And then, so I know Bill wants to ask a question about uh, something that's near and dear to us in Seattle. Yeah, I say this all so, the time. you know, just kind of, just to put it bluntly, uh, do you believe in climate change and uh, would you support uh, local legislation to fight it? I do believe in climate change. I have had jobs where I was not allowed to sit, talk about climate change. <laughs> and that was awkward. Was this Can also you? in the South? Uh, yeah, when I, uh, when I worked for... Florida and Virginia at various times, it was off limits to mention sea level rise even, which was weird because I was working in flooding policy. Well, (laughs) and and I know uh, in Florida for the longest time and maybe even today with Governor DeSantis, Mm. uh, who's just rampantly crushing uh, voting rights, but whatever, um, he, uh, uh, Rick Scott, uh, wouldn't let his governmental officials mention climate change just to hit on that. Yeah, Yeah, I worked at the Division of Emergency Management when Rock Sc- Rick Scott was governor, and then I moved to Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> hey, weird how that works. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, I support local legislation too. <laughs> Address uh, it. I'm, I'm stunned <laughs> and enthralled by your experience, but um, how do you get around that when you're in that mix, when you know that there's this thing that's going on, you know that there's this proven scientific issue, how do you get around it? Well, I mean, you can't say what you can't say, but you can absolutely tell people, oh, our flood maps are based about based around the data available at the time that they were made. And they are only a current projection ah. of existing circumstances. So you are able to hedge a bit to provide some context so that anybody with half a brain understands what it is you're... Yeah. And specifically, our flood maps are... Um, made at least with riverine flooding so that they are one foot under the projected. Oh. Yeah, so check this out. The flood maps are a foot under. It's likely <laughs> that all of our projections are are, are sh- kind of short-sighted or, or even just, I mean, the oil companies have lied to us. Yeah. The government's lied to us. Like, we don't really know who's telling the truth in the climate projection debate, but we know that... They're a foot below what mm-hmm. we know is already a low projection. <laughs> yeah, we know they're a fl- foot below what would happen the day that the flood maps were made. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the key right there. <laughs> and I swear, you have to laugh because otherwise, You'll what drown. are you? You'll drown. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I, I would just like, just, I'm sorry just yeah. to interject too much here, but the Republican de- Party is a defunct organization. <laughs> Period. Well, the Dems are on point. Yeah. They're super, uh, yeah, they're ahead of the curve, right? Okay. The corporate-owned Democrats. All right. Yeah. Are we, let's not, let's okay. not, we digress. We digress. Yeah. Yeah. Let's okay. not so, tank our yeah. candidates' chances. That, uh, <laughs> so one of the things that I deeply love, it was this thing, this thing while I was running um, the original version, I actually helped give a lot of input to um, 
this piece of legislation. Now we're seeing it at like the city level. So Green New Deal mm-hmm. at the city level. Is this mm. a thing you've talked about or thought about on your campaign or consider? I know like we're asking the candidate yeah. who doesn't have yard signs to be environmentally friendly <laughs> and who has like reusable vests like her what she thinks. Do you believe in climate change? But uh, yeah, so let me get your input on that. Okay. Um, I have the t-shirt. I showed up for the <laughs> signing ceremony. I've signed on to it. Um, I do, you know, right now it's a nebulous concept instead of a series of policies. So I do have concerns about like what those policies are. Mm-hmm. But especially given my background in flood, um, it's very irresponsible not to be a part of it. Agreed. Who do you think the proper authority is governmentally to lead the charge? Uh, let me reframe. Do you think that a state or local government can tackle climate change uh, in absence of the federal government and be considered to like be doing so effectively? I think you the answer is yes and no, because you need every you need every level of government. Let's be frank. Hmm. I do think local government is super important in this response. Because we know in Seattle, 50% of our carbon comes from personal vehicles. Yeah. And you can't address that effectively, really, at the national level because it's a land use pattern problem. True. That's um, it's it's in the metropolitan areas and it gets different mm-hmm. than it's from um, commercial farming, farming and commercialism and, and like when you get out east and like, yeah, it changes. So that is a metropolitan issue. But I think that you're I love talking about like the fusion of local yeah. and, and federal <laughs> politics. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize like when we interview local Seattle candidates, we're also encouraging people to like get out and talk to your local candidates because these issues, what we think of things like the Green New Deal at the national level, they're also existing at the local and city level. Absolutely. And you want candidates who are taking a wide angle view on what is our piece in the larger movement towards dealing with climate crisis. It is a huge issue. Well, I could see hypothetically, you know, four or five years from now, you get a progressive Congress or something that will take the Green New Deal seriously and they allocate billions of dollars to cities, but they'll require they'll have strings attached. So, you know. The, the it, it I, it's hard to get too direct because the question could go a lot of different ways. But mm-hmm. it, my thinking is, you know, uh, would you would you kind of like uh, would you would you accept federal funds or kind of submit to f- any type of federal authority or state authority in order to uh, let's say if it was to money to take cars off the road, <laughs> if you could get a billion dollars into this city, but you had to have all the downtown car free Mm -hmm. would would you approve Mm -hmm. that well i mean it's a a hypothetical yeah i mean and that's the thing like getting downtown car free is not something that we can do suddenly it's a process it means that we have to have working transit it means that we have to have different methods of land use to get working transit it's a goal and like it's absolutely something i would love to see for all urban areas to have car-free downtowns. But how you get there, yes, a giant infusion of federal cash helps, but fundamentally you're talking about moving people and changing where people live and changing how people go about their daily lives. And federal money can help you make those changes, but fundamentally at the local level, you also have to change your building codes and change the kind of um, residences that are available. That is interesting and very true there there's no sudden quick 
uh, fixes, but I, I have a question for you. When you think about the downtown corridor, you think about all of what's going on in Seattle, the 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 growth, and and we'll be moving into some discussions around uh, affordable housing and all that. Mm-hmm. But what do you see as some steps we can take in Seattle from a legislative, from a legal standpoint to begin that process? Well, I was talking to somebody yesterday and I said, it's not your fault that you drive a car. It's the result of a decision a planner made 20, 30, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Car-centric development, single-family homes that are far apart is just kind of the reality of much of Seattle. Yeah. I live on the other side of densification. I walk to work. We walk our daughter across the street. We are able to walk to a grocery store. We have areas like that. We call them urban villages, but they're a minority of Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, moving from those low-density car-dependent patterns to urban walkable environments is what I see as the mission of local government right now. There's no way that we can meet our environmental targets while still having car dependency. But you can't get rid of car dependency just by taking people's cars away. You have to address the form issues that resulted in that car dependency. Wow. Yes. I, I agree. Love that. I just got chills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. 100%. Yes, yeah. Infrastructure is a huge thing near and dear to my heart. I'm a big nerd for like taxes and infrastructure, which is like most people are like, why? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, so we talk a lot about Seattle's issues too. And we, uh, speaking of, we want to, we're actually going to bring in uh, another interviewer named Mark who's going to talk way more in depth <laughs> and ask way more in depth questions about the housing crisis. But I do want to ask a couple questions. So in Seattle, we have one of the biggest wealth gaps in the nation across the board. And even with our $15 an hour minimum, we we're still seeing a lot of people to who who struggle to afford to live here. Mm-hmm. So how can city council help bridge that gap? And then what if you have one, if you think it can be done, what would be your plan to make that happen? Well, let's talk about why uh, Washington State specifically has this kind of wealth gap. And it's the taxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, no idea. <laughs> there, uh, I don't think anyone is like has any mystery about that. Um, however, the ability of local government to work within the strictures of state government on taxation is limited. We have constitutional issues. We have state enabling legislation issues. There isn't a lot of room. I mean, maybe, maybe the Washington Supreme Court will decide to throw us all a curveball. And in July, when the high earners tax comes before them, they'll decide it's okay. And then like, we're in a new world. (laughs) But I can't see that happening. So and what's a brief breakdown of the high earners tax? Oh, okay. Um, The limitations on taxation in Washington State are pretty extensive. Um, We are not allowed to directly charge an income tax, and we are not allowed to have graduated taxation because we have a um, uniformity rule. Um, Seattle City Council decided to try to get around that by having a income tax that started at people earning 200K, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, You can have a high floor before taxation starts is the idea. There are constitutional and state enabling legislation issues with that. 
and we will see how the Supreme Court comes out. I mean, they haven't visited the issue since the 1930s. Maybe things have changed. <laughs> Maybe hearts have changed. <laughs> oh, please. But uh... so, Something else is very similar to, well, pre-1930s, <laughs> the inequality. Hey. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I am very much a realist about what power city government has. Sometimes when I'm campaigning, I wish I knew less <laughs> so I could make big promises. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then be like, I had no, no idea. idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that. And that is, that's a big one. Like, I know one of the most, so this, I'm going to ask just a controversial yeah, sure. question. Absolutely. Uh, as we do occasionally. So one of the big ones that caused a little bit of fissure in Seattle is the soda tax. Mm-hmm. 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 Do you want to impart upon us your feelings on the soda tax? Well, right now the soda tax is kind of saving our budget. Yep. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's saving our budget because it hasn't worked the way we hoped. But <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain? Well, the hope was that the soda tax would reduce the amount of uh, sweetened uh, beverages people drink. Consumed, yeah. yeah. It didn't happen, which means it's a great source of income and able to, like, save the budget from the hole left by the uh, payroll tax. But, uh, you know, it also means that it's not doing what people wanted it to. Right. And it's not being used to go back into the communities that are most affected by the soda tax and give them more recreational opportunities, which is how it was sold. Mm -hmm. Um, However, when there is a patchwork on a huge gaping wound in the budget... You're kind of like, well, we can't really pull that off. Yeah. Can't really do much with it. Yeah. And I, uh, so you mentioned the the communities that are most affected by it. So if in just in your opinion, personal or city council candidate opinion, what do you, who do you think are the, are the communities that are most affected by this? Well, we know that on average, people who make less money drink more sweetened beverages. It's just what the research shows. And as with any tax, it has more impact on people who make less money because it's a bigger portion of their budget. Right. You yes. know, that's that's just the way taxes work. Yep. Yeah. That is unfortunately yep. the way taxes work. And yeah. I know that uh so diversity of, of all kinds is a, a huge, a huge thing here in Seattle. We always talk about being a big diverse city and there's there's a lot of gives and takes about it. We've had conversations about how Seattle is actually not as progressive as people think. Um Seattle actually does struggle with, with racial tension a lot more than people think. Um Seattle struggles with uh, it struggles with its own identity a lot. And so mm-hmm. we know that we really want to be a city that really fights for diversity. And I know that having that the most diverse city council could be a really incredible thing. Um, when it comes to that kind of thing, protecting marginalized communities, protecting targeted communities, what is what do you believe your role as a sitting city council, city councilman or city councilperson would be? It's to plan with instead of for. I that sounds like a simple soundbite, but it's not simple to execute. Um, if the people you're planning for aren't at the table, then you need to stop and figure out how to get them at the table. I just want to pause us for one second. I mean, just to be absolutely one hundred percent unbiased. Could you say that one more time? <laughs> I, uh, I, I think it is what you said really is the solution to many, many, yeah. so many across yeah. the spectrum. It sounds so very simple. Diversity from straight to gay to all colors and shades of the rainbow. Could you just one more time? It's to plan with instead of for. 
I'm gonna make that my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, okay. I am so glad you mentioned that. I actually looked at your website. Ha! I looked at your okay. website. You as did I did research. I did research. Our producer, who's normally in the studio, would be so proud. <laughs> um, so I, I read that you you talk a lot about um, equity on your platform, and we at the Better Left Podcast love when people differentiate between equity and equality. Boom. So, how would you define the difference between equity and equality? Equality is what's easy to measure. It's giving people exactly the same thing and that feels good and that feels really fair. Equity is when you give people what they need and that's really hard to quantify. That's really hard to measure and it can feel really unfair because you end up giving some people a lot more and some people a lot less. My heart is about to explode out of my chest cavity because that is exactly what equality versus equity is. And we've, we really have previously informed other city council <laughs> candidates of what the actual difference is. Can, can and I then, get the tissues? <laughs> <laughs> and so I know that, you know, uh, we talk about diversity. We talk about, about justice. We talk about things like I've asked questions about uh, another city council candidate asked about the youth jail that's that's mm -hmm. going up in, in uh, that's going to mostly affect the Rainier Beach community. Um, so when you think about this, this, this aspect of equity and when you think about our justice system in the city of Seattle, how do you, how does that view of equity affect something like justice reform? for you on a city level. So um, I guess a better way to phrase that question is using that that lens of equity, when you look at criminal justice, what would be something that you'd want to push for at a city level for, for justice reform, if anything? I just don't know what that noise is. That's fine. Jay can edit it out. I can't hear it on here. Okay. Perfect. Okay. okay. Sorry. Well, let's start off with the facts of the matter. I'm a white woman and I have a law degree. I am not the most affected by the criminal justice system. So I am not the person we should be listening to about this. Um, however, there is something that I keep in mind. In a perfect world, I would have random police calls to officers, to prosecutors, and to elected officials' houses. Basically, we would all be swatted as a condition of having the positions that we have. And unless that feels like a safe thing to have happen, we're not there yet with justice reform. If the police aren't, if you're not comfortable with the police showing up at your door randomly with some sort of call, then they shouldn't be showing up at anybody else's either. Oh, I totally a, agree. That's a very solid answer. That's interesting. That's Bad very interesting. policy happens yeah. when people with power exempt themselves from the conditions. Which we kind of have, we live in a pervasive <laughs> we, atmosphere of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we talk about that quite a bit. Yeah, we yeah. We do, actually. It's, and I know, Um, so there was a the police contract that recently mm -hmm. got negotiated with Mayor Jenny Durkin. What are your feelings about the police contract negotiations that happened? Well, the people in the affected community weren't satisfied. I, you know, my Feelings don't even really enter into it when the people most affected say that it's not the right thing for their community. I love this. <laughs> it's almost like when you're elected, you should like go talk to the people who's good, who are going to be impacted the most by your legislation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird. Um, and then so there's a couple of other things. We have, uh, there's so many areas, especially like I love South Seattle. So I know it's not your district. That's D2, which is near and dear to my heart. I love oh. it so much. But I know we also have a, a huge immigrant community here. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, am extremely proud of our status as a sanctuary city. And so uh, what, how do you, do you support our status as a sanctuary? City. Absolutely. 
Wonderful. Well. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Um, so when it when it comes to when it comes to <laughs> to us here in Seattle, we we talk a lot about protecting our immigrant communities from mm-hmm. from unfair targeting. Is there more that you think can be done right now as, for for city council to help prevent those immigrant communities from being targeted? So to help reinforce our Seattle city, our sanctuary city status. Um, unfortunately, we live within a hundred miles of a coastline. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> so we 25 are. 25 if you're at Troy's house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were in within the jurisdiction of Customs and Border Protections no matter what we do. Um, now, I would like us to see what we can get creative about, particularly about courthouses. That really bothers me. Oh, can you. Uh, oh, um, ICE has been targeting courthouses for enforcement. It is one of the places that's not actually technically off limits for them. And we can't make it actually technically off limits for them because we don't make policies, which is why I'm like, how creative can we get? Can we introduce churches into our courthouses? Right. Which would make them religious institutions and therefore exempt from ICE jurisdiction. I mean, like, we're going to have to get a little bit weird. But maybe it's time to get a little bit weird because that's unacceptable to me. It is having people show up at court dates. Given how weird things are at yeah. this point, I'm ready to get real weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, let's get real weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so because on the Better Left podcast, we always refer back to national politics. I'm going to ask another controversial question, which I have done in the past. I've been known to do occasionally. No. Uh, so recently there was out of New York 14, there was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. who referred to the uh, immigration camps as concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And so it, this can be personal or city council. What is your, so I personally firmly support, I think she's totally right. Um, do you believe that these are akin to concentration camps or do you think it's something different? Everyone I know personally who has lost family to concentration camps says yes. So Yeah. I mean, when we have generational trauma, we have generational trauma, but we also develop an immune response as a society, hopefully, in that people who have been impacted remember the shape of things that injured them. And that's why I think the people who are best equipped to tell us these are concentration camps are people who have lost family. Um, On a personal level, my wife is Jewish and we have talked. I tell her, I'm not going to know when it's time to leave, but you will. You need to make that call for our family, and I need to trust you because this is one of the things that you've been raised for, you've been trained for. Um, And we spent a long time keeping all of our assets in cash because we didn't know whether or not we would have to flee. We've talked to Canadian immigration attorneys, and I don't think we're the only people who are looking at this and going, yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen this pattern before. And what you're saying, I think that it's important to note your preparation, your doomsday prepping <laughs> is not unusual. And that's when it gets scary. That's when it gets frightening. When you have friends and Jewish friends that are like, not yet, but mm-hmm. we're looking close. Like that's frightening. 
It's terrifying. And this is something that we're seeing in immigrant communities. This is also something that we're seeing in the LGBTQIA community, um, especially with things like the trans ban. And then there's the yeah. women who have been murdered in D.C., the the trans women of color um, there. And this is not there are two high profile murders so far, but those are just the high profile ones. Right. Yeah. The, the ones that we haven't heard about. There are more of those or the ones that we haven't categorized as hate crimes against, against the right. trans community. And so mm. when it comes to things like protect protecting the trans community and protecting the LGBTQIA community, protecting these super marginalized groups that really are earnestly living in fear, doomsday prepping. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What can we, what can, what do you believe city council can do? What do you want to do as a, as a city councilman? And then what can we do as members of the community who just want to protect the people that we love? Well, um, this is interesting because it relates to something that I just went to a listening session from the Department of Licensing about adding X to driver's licenses. And one of the suggestions was, wait, what if we dropped a gender designation altogether? Because changing gender designation into something that outs people is also a danger in this climate. Which led to the other question, which is, why is gender something we are keeping a record of at a department that's in charge of licensing motor vehicles at all? I think in times like this, we need to get really disciplined with regard to data, particularly with regard to data that can target people. And in a city with such strong freedom of information, act laws, which are generally a good thing, we need to get really serious about making sure that we don't collect data that could lead to targeting and that we don't release data that could lead to targeting. Um, we've seen this with um, Danny Eschini, um, was outed by a freedom of information request to the Department of Health. Um, I have been on the phone with them and there's just no way for somebody to apply for a social worker license without giving out their dead name. And that's requestable. So we have some serious policy gaps we need to fill. That particular one is a state gap, but I suspect on the state level we will find this because it's endemic to assume that information is neutral. And in a situation like this, information is not neutral. And you've, um, I, I read on your website too, you're a supporter of municipal broadband too, speaking of data and data, <laughs> yeah. data encryption. So just to take a, a, a little bit of a lighter like, turn, yeah. as I love to do, I'm like, speaking of people being marginalized and outed and oppressed, let's talk about the internet. Um, so when it comes to things like, uh, like municipal broadband, I've been a huge supporter. Was the whole time. Every person in here is a big dork. Troy's an internet nerd. I'm internet a cool. Dork. Internet cool guy. Um, <laughs> and I know you know our yeah. other producer, my partner Jay, is off doing his thing, being super cool on the internet too. But when it comes to things like municipal broadband, uh, is this really something that cities can do? Can we go city by city and make this happen? Um, I am not sure about all of the cities. But Seattle is unusually well positioned. We own our own poles. We own our own right of way. I've heard that there's even dark fiber that we started <laughs> installing in the 90s that's just out there that hasn't been inventory. Oh wait, wait, what? what is dark? <laughs> what do you have? What do you have? Rogue fiber? Yeah. Just out there? Yeah. Just for lines. a while when we dug up streets, we also laid fiber, fiber optic cable <laughs> as a matter of policy. <laughs> All right. That is bananas. I mean, I come from a city that had one of the early free nets. And um, that was my generation. Like, that's how I got on the internet as a teenager was through the local free net. And I've seen the impact that that's had. Um, I went to school with people who don't have college degrees but are now sysadmins at like 3M because of the experience they got 
working for the local Freenet. Um, it's really a skill builder. And sorry to bring up a controversial subject in a lighthearted what? No, 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 no. But yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> we never do that here. When we look at Amazon HQ2, and when you look at what they actually selected as places, mm -hmm. it was based on infrastructure and the availability of an educated populace. And if you look at something that will build infrastructure and an educated populace, that's pretty straightforward, especially yeah. given all the advantages we have in being able to do it. Absolutely. I agree. And speaking of our local boogeyman, mm -hmm. Amazon, yes. uh, when the head tax came up mm -hmm. and I, we got to ask, I feel yeah. like it's, it's, it's now like almost a, a lore that you have to, you like have it's a to. required question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you feel about the Amazon head tax and the vote and everything, all the hullabaloo that went down around that? The hullabaloo. Yeah. The Amazon hand tax made me really sad. Um, let's be honest. We're a tech family. We, my wife works for Google. I'm able to live here because I'm in a very similar situation to all of the people who work for Amazon. And it felt like a lot of what we were talking about was who was being targeted instead of who was being helped. And mm -hmm. in a city right now where we do see the desperate need for housing, the fact that we were talking about who we were imposing the tax on instead of what we were imposing the tax for, kind of hurt my feelings, you know? Like, yes, somebody has to pay for all of the things that we do in a city. It's it's the reality. There isn't like a magic money wand as much as I would like there to be. But what's important is what we're doing more so than like who we're hurting. And the fact that it was framed that way felt like it was very much about winners and losers instead of we need to get people into houses. Now, from a pure logistical standpoint, this is the only tax that the city of Seattle has ever uh, successfully collected that they're not currently collecting that I know of. Um, they actually got money for a payroll tax from Amazon before. Um, so it seems like in a city with very limited options, a good choice. And we're not unique. There are other cities who have payroll taxes, um, including, you know, Denver, um, places that were under consideration for a second headquarters, oddly enough. Huh. Okay. Um, so, um, but when you, but it was hard to um, not feel a little bit like it was about, we don't want you in our city. And I understand that as an employer, Amazon is controversial and hard. But it's also hard to say that without also thinking about all the people who live here because of Amazon and work for Amazon and identify with them a little bit. So um, the closest thing to being a tech family in Seattle I've ever experienced was growing up in a college town and suddenly becoming a college student in that college town. Um, there isn't a great integration of those families with Seattle in general. And that culture gap can sometimes wound. That, well, and I, uh, honestly, like one of my goals is to try to separate everyone who feels that way from Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Physically, <laughs> Physically I mean, like, separate Yeah, them. it's like I, I get because I get that the company is often a good one or these companies are good to work for because they have their monopolies and they have all the money. Mm -hmm. Right. So they can just make it, you know, good to work for. But and I get you're taught that identification with the company is real because of that. Mm -hmm. But. We can separate that from Jeff Bezos. Yeah. 
I wanted to um, ask you how how would you go about introducing opportunities for those Amazon workers to feel like they're they're satellites, not just visiting three year term folk. Oh, you could just you could go say hi to them and then just never call them again. <laughs> well, that is actually the way we do it in okay, so yeah, I think maybe. That, okay, yes. <laughs> we we've just figured out your policy plan. <laughs> We'll call it the Seattle chill. Yes, the <laughs> Seattle cold breeze. Yeah, I like it. There yeah. we go. Well, and I mean, that's the thing. It's We're in the middle of a lot of things. Um, and having so much growth is always a challenge because there's the issue of cultural integration. How do you make people who come to your city part of your city? And you know, where I come from, the South, you're just all up in their business. It's not that you care about them. It's that there's something you can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and Seattle has more respect for people than that. It's a it's a city that's kind to introverts and doesn't necessarily like oh, yes. yank them all into, you know, your business. <laughs> but at the same time, that makes it a little bit harder to feel like you're a part of the city. Yeah. And I would say that that's the opportunity that we have with formal mechanisms. Um, right now, politics is very much seen as a thing that's for old school Seattleites by old school Seattleites. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I, now, can you, can you break that down? Just <laughs> yeah, like, do. like, what does that mean? I'm I sorry. mean, last time in D4, you had two people who were fifth generation Seattleites running against each other. Uh, yeah, okay. that's true. Okay. That's not an accident. That's not a random sampling of the city. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm trying. I mean, you had an enthusiastic. <laughs> yep. How about share? I, I'm part. just saying. You've been that, here forever for life, right? Yeah, but I, I, I tend to be like so. Um, one of my favorite groups of folks, um, because I, uh, I don't have a car. Um, I depend on uh, uh, public transportation or Lyft or Uber. Well, Lyft. Um, <laughs> um, but when I speak to folks they're like i'm like how what how long have you been here they're like oh i've i've only been here for 10 years and i'm like oh no you're a seattleite now <laughs> you yeah. you get you get to claim they're like I get this. they're like do i really <laughs> they get a little tear in their eye and i'm like no you really do like yeah. you yeah you you've been here you you've been a part of this you've been in the game and uh i i just find that there is a I think it's not unusual, but people are like, oh, well, you know, where, where did you come from? And and I'll say, yeah, no, born and born and raised here. I said I did move. I, I did live in, in California for five years. And they're like, oh, yeah, you, you don't count. Uh, but, but there are definitely people who feel like you have to have been born and bred here in Seattle to be a Seattleite. And and that is ridiculous uh, on its face just because. You know where did their parents come from? All the, it, it's that it's that argument of who belongs. Well, my feeling is, you belong wherever you are, and we need to do a little more work in Seattle, making sure that people feel like because they're here, they belong. And uh, I actually only moved here the year before <laughs> you did, and I had people being like, "You haven't lived here long enough." Are you kidding me? 
Are you kidding me? Five years is more than enough time to understand <laughs> what's going on in the city. Oh you joking gosh. right now? Yeah. Let me tell you something. You got a master's degree in. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you, everybody right now, as a result of the system we have established, is from somewhere else. It is a luxury and a privilege to be able to afford to stay where you were born and raised, especially in Seattle, because our cost of living, our housing prices, our markets, our rental markets are insane. Mm-hmm. And Almost nobody here is from here. So be quiet. You're not from here. (laughs) I'm not from here. No one's here from here. Exactly. And the other thing that people will do is they'll get angry at the people who live in the places that have been gentrified. Like they, like Capitol Hill, I mean, it has changed in a really dramatic way. And people are like, hey, uh, this sounds cool. The, this, you know, uh, uh, on the ed- this edgy gayborhood, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live here while all the gays are walking by, like flipping off people who live up in those places. And they're getting cranky because, well, this is a noisy neighborhood. Well, it's actually not the renter's fault and it's not the fault of the people who live there it's somebody else's fault i I, who could that be (laughs) (laughs) gentrification is this is a really organic way to lead into our gentrification questions Mm -hmm. um so we want to you know seattle we all talk about this insane housing market that we have in our lovely city and i i love it here and like listen if you're not part of the original you know indigenous tribes from here no one's from here so we can all just be quiet about whether or not we're from here exactly but you also have this this and i want to say booming housing market but that makes it sound like a good thing mm-hmm. and the the fact of the matter is is it is a disastrous thing <laughs> it is a real bad thing nobody can afford to buy and then we're jacking up rents despite an average of 10% vacancy across the city um and then we're seeing like it's not just 10% there's some areas where it's like uh, 9 i think it's uh, south lake union is like 17% mm-hmm. um is like 50 or like 18% like it's it's actually much higher in a lot of these neighborhoods so when it comes to things like housing and you're looking at these rates and you're looking at the disaster that is our current housing market what can we what can we do to help folks on the city level what kind of policy can we push what kind of things can we support what can we see you do as a as a city councilman or city council person to get it done i believe in serious bullshit and i think we need to talk about it openly right there are things that are never going to be true that their truth doesn't even matter, but they're things that we have to believe in in order to make them more true. And that is a whole class of things that deeply affect policy. Seattle being a welcoming place, being a place that's open to all kinds of people, no, it's not true. And it probably never will be true. But it's serious bullshit, and we have to believe in it, and we have to believe as if it's true and as if it's something we can make true or else we're never going to make progress. I actually, I love that because that's how, that's what we're trying to talk to people about too. Like that's Seattle literally is what not, we're trying to do. But in, in order to do that. Here's how we can change. Yeah, well, yeah. Like that's order, what we're trying to do. And in order to do that, we have to have, that's why I get real kind of aggressive with my rhetoric because like we have to just be like, let's just fucking call it what it is. Let's get it out there. And then we can measure opinions based on what it is. But let's not hide what it is. Well, we can't be a people and we can't have a culture if we don't have mythology. Mm-hmm. Right. And, true. Right. And like the other thing that we need to take stock of, too, and all of this is like, 
get out of here, all you NIMBYs that don't want to actually do anything about homelessness or marginalized people. We are a goddamn welcoming city. Just you get cl- out of here. Well, just for clarity, <laughs> yeah. what, uh, just to make sure I, I understand what you're saying, we can... Uh, we can have mythology and still have these. Com- we can have these conversations and then ha- still have mythology. Absolutely, like believing in something doesn't mean that you can't measure it. Mythology takes place at the cultural level. Policy is like three steps down from there. Right. And what you do with policy is you measure whether or not it's working. And when you pass policy, you say, "Oh, does this conform with who we want to be as a people?" Right. Like the truth or falsity is is this policy supporting our culture, the culture of who we want to be? Right. That is the question. Right. The social bonds uh, take priority over everything, but the policy should be used to enforce those social bonds rather, you, rather than to potentially fray them. Yeah, you decide who you want to be as a culture. You decide right. on your mythology. You decide what your serious bullshit is. Right. And then your policy needs to align with that. And then you can decide whether or not the policy is working. Right. But if you're down here, whether or not something is working, you're a step away from mythology. Right. And as soon as you start to decide whether or not your mythology is working, you're broken because mythology isn't about truth or false. And I think that's where we're at now, because I think a lot of the bullshit we've been telling ourselves, we're finally starting to. There's a really clear narrative being that has been pushed by people like ta Coates, Cornell West. Uh, economists like Stephanie Kell. I mean, you know, there's a, the, all these schools of thought. I'm just naming names just because, like, we, we're, we've we never really been honest as a culture about the indigenous genocide, the ma- the centuries of slavery. Mm-hmm. Though, ha- you know, there was a nice juxtaposition between, between Ta-Nehisi Coates and this guy, ah, this guy, last name Hughes, Michael Hughes, I can't remember his name, but they both had different views on reparations right yeah where Ta-Nehisi Coates is like of course we have to take some type of we have to take stock of history and potentially pay these reparations whereas Hughes is like we have to take stop at stock and acknowledge that history but but we need to be more universal in policies today and I'm just like well there's something there they're, t- they're having a conversation yeah and I think that's it's very hard to openly talk about the idea of culture and mythology and making who you are as a people and who is included in that and who is not included in that. And I think that's where we're having that conversation right now is we have had this conversation about who we are as a people without everyone on the table. 100%. And yeah, now we need to rehab that conversation with a bigger table. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to have that conversation and decide who we are culturally. Right. And have policies that align with that idea of who we are culturally. Because... Yeah. If we lose who we are, we can't have a meaningful government because who is the government for and what is the government supposed to do? Right. And our hope, like when we talk about this stuff about we're telling people like stop like lying to yourself and saying Seattle's a progressive city, like we we our policies do not align with that mythology. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to point out to people. Like we wanna be this, this is the city we wanna be, but our actions don't reflect who we are trying to become. And our policies don't reflect it. Our elected officials don't reflect it. And so we cannot walk around with this mantle of progressivism and then refuse to do the work to be a progressive city. It just can't be done. And that's why we are really seriously unafraid. Okay, so just to uh, so to talk a little bit more about about housing and, and gentrification and everything. Um, so when we talk about 
about helping people out with housing and helping people stay in these in these areas talk about Seattle being a really expensive city to live in um when we're seeing these the, this this booming quote-unquote housing market that's getting away from us this booming rental market's getting away from us in light of all these these vacancies that we see like the the it's something like oh gosh I can't remember exact I know it's like 18 percent in Tequila it's something like 15 or 16 percent in South Lake Union um it's 10 percent average across the city but that's not indicative of neighborhood by neighborhood analysis mm-hmm. uh average rent is over a thousand dollars for I I believe that's a studio apartment. I don't even think that's a one bedroom anymore. Um, we're seeing this stuff spiral out of control in Seattle. So what sort of measures can we take as a city? What can we take? Uh, what what, me- what measures could you take as a city council person to try and help stop that, that flat out financial hemorrhage? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with the beginning, which is that we don't have enough housing in Seattle for the people who want to live here. And one of the things that happened is Housing is one of the least economically beneficial things you can do with a piece of property. You're always going to make more money doing retail or office and the parcel that can have retail office or housing. So when the market has a preference like that, unless you address that preference policy-wise, what you're going to get is what the market wants. Now, what I would like to do as an initial policy is something I call housing concurrency. Right now, when there's a proposal to build something, we look at the transportation impacts and what kind of trips that's going to cause and whether or not we have the road capacity or the bus capacity for that. It's a standard study. It's pretty common to do um, transportation concurrency. Now, hidden in that is the idea that people are going from home to work because that's the trip that's studied because it's peak volume. What I would like to do is do housing concurrency where when we build office or when we build retail, these create a demand for housing. The people who work there need a place to live. Let's, when these things go in, take a look at the housing demand they're creating and whether or not that housing demand can be satisfied in an area within a reasonable proximity. And we know that most people will will handle a 30-minute commute before they get unhappy of the intended use. That starts taking housing out of the idea that it's a personal good and into the idea that it's a social good, which I think is behind a lot of these overall issues. But it also helps kind of close the barn door, even though the horses are out on our housing deficit, by keeping it from getting worse. Okay. And I know we, uh, so we did a old switcheroo and we brought Mark in, who's going to, his big passion is housing. And so, uh, Mark, say hi. Hey, everyone. How's it going? <laughs> so Mark is actually, we're going to lean into Mark. He's got a ton of questions for you, too, about housing. Um, and we're just going to, Bill and I will just chime in. But I'm going to pass the torch mm-hmm. over to Mark to ask you more questions to get more into depth about that crisis and about talking about the horses that are out. How do we close the barn door? What's in the barn door? And <laughs> I don't know. I trust you, Mark. Good luck. Cool. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> well, well, so we've had a couple conversations uh, outside of the podcast. Um, and obviously, what's really exciting me and drawn me to your campaign is just when it comes to housing, I feel like there's no one more qualified um, to address it. But I had a couple more specifics I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. Yeah. Well, so uh, I know you identify as an urbanist, but there's a couple strains of that. Um, do you feel like you identify more as a, a market urbanist or a socialist urbanist? Do you have a, a feeling one way or another? Well, I kind of feel like you're mixing two things that are different. Urbanism is a preference for city form. And the other two are economic theories. Um we have a market-based economic system now. So regardless of what your preference is, you have to deal with the market. And if you refuse to deal with the market, you're going to be ineffective. On the other hand, we know that the market wants what it wants and the market doesn't have a heart or any interest in what 
individuals need in order to live happy, healthy lives. So giving yourself completely over to the market means that ultimately you're going to have a winner take all and everyone else is going to just be in a terrible position. So we really need to balance these economic approaches by looking at what markets will do and then looking at what the needs of the community are and trying to shape the market to better meet the needs of the community. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, well, earlier you had mentioned uh, when we were talking, you were talking about the comprehensive plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain what that is and why it's important? <laughs> okay, the comprehensive plan is, and I'm going to quote my uh, favorite law school professor, Mandelker, here. The confirmation, comprehensive plan is the constitution for zoning. The comprehensive plan is what lays out all of our goals for land use, for transportation, for how our city's urban form is going to be for the next 20 years. And it's a really important document because it helps direct growth. It helps lay out our big vision policies. And it helps determine what can and cannot get built in the city in a way that's at an even broader level than specifics of zoning. And um, it's also kind of a vision document. When we're planning, we're talking about, hey, what do I want the city to look like when my daughter is old enough to go off to college? That's, That's the horizon we're looking at. And that's a reasonable horizon to look at when we're dealing with urban form questions. This is the, okay, let's all sit down and think really hard about what urban form we want to have in Seattle and how we can change that. That's why I think the comprehensive plan is a big deal in general, but specifically this update of the comprehensive plan is one that we really need to focus down on and get some good policies in. Yeah. I mean, so the the last comprehensive plan was in 2015, mm-hmm. right? Uh, is, there, is there something that you see that is like wrong with the current one? things that were the city could be doing better? Um, Right now, our comprehensive plan is really focused on the urban village strategy. And I'm not going to say anything bad about urban villages. I live in one on purpose. (laughs) There are places with dense urban development where you can walk and take transit and have reasonable access to the things that make cities feel more like cities. But that concentration comes at a cost of... um, prioritizing single-family homes in the rest of the city. And for a large city, we have a lot of our land area devoted to single-family homes. We need to start having a serious conversation about how we turn more of that area given to suburban car-dependent patterns of development over into things that are more like the urban village where you live in a small town where you can walk to things. And so actually, one of the things I've talked about recently is uh, we all know there's inevitable market crash coming again, right? We're just mm-hmm. universally accepting it in this room. Look uh, at the yield curve. Woo, it's going <laughs> to happen. I'm so excited. I'm not excited. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to happen. And one of the things I talked about is one of the failures that we saw at a city, state, and federal level is we failed to let our, our the Department of Housing become a player in the real estate game. Mm-hmm. And so what we let happen is people would default on their mortgages and the banks would be buying them back for pennies on the dollar with the billion of dollars 
dollars in, in bailout that we gave them. Mm-hmm. And so then they'd just wait for the market to recover. Then they'd re- turn around and resell them again at a wildly jacked up price all over again, which is what's getting us back into this. Uh, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about just at a city level is do you think it is a reasonable option for the city to become a market player in buying these these parcels of land when they do fall to the wayside or buying any parcel of land, regardless of the state of the market? Do you think that it's, it's reasonable or feasible for the city to become a player in this and actually start building those multifamily houses and building that affordable housing or like the condo plexes or whatever we need to call them in urban villages on the city's own terms? Well, last time there was a market downturn, we had the rule that you had to sell publicly owned land at fair market price in the open market. So it would have been much less effective for the city to buy up land because then we couldn't turn it over and you end up with a city public housing entity. This time we're we're working with a different set of rules and we're able to turn over publicly owned land to places um, for affordable housing. So it's a kind of a new opportunity, I would say. Um, and I wish this is this is me wishfully thinking. This Ideal is not world. yes. <laughs> um, tax increment financing is where you upzone a place. The difference in uh, tax productivity between the original use and the new use is the increment, and that is used to drive bonds to allow you to build things in the upzoned area. Um, there, I wish I could remember the name of the city um, that did tax increment financing, and all of that money goes to affordable housing. So the difference in productivity in this area with upzoning between the previous use and the new use goes into making sure that it stays affordable. That's the kind of thing that I would like to see us do. And like, yes, during a market crash, it would be great to buy up property. The question is, how do we do that? Because we're in financial constraints, in part because we have so many single family homes. Um, I don't think people talk openly enough about it, but city infrastructure is expensive. And single family homes, as much as people love them, are not super productive tax wise which means that most city homes cause a deficit for the city in terms of the property tax they generate versus the infrastructure that they need to keep going. I mean, yeah, I could see um, something like the because this is a national problem. Yeah. I could see something like the federal government doing a, you know, one yeah. time 10 million, 20, 10, 10 billion, 20 billion dollar plan where they just say, OK, you can take this money. You can use it to I don't know. Can can the cities use the eminent domain to just take or to, if, to just buy property outright like that and then kind of repurpose it? Um, eminent domain has been limited in Washington state okay. by constitutional amendment. So it has to be for public use. Um, But in this particular circumstance, we're not necessarily really talking about a taking. We're talking about a default that would result in a property tax default or something like that. Okay. Does social housing count as public use? Um, Yes, I think. I'm sorry. This happened after... Kilo. Yeah, Kilo. So I think pretty much anything can yeah. be designated yeah. a public use. Yeah. yeah, this was in response to Kilo, so there isn't a ton of case law about it. <laughs> Could you just elaborate right. for people that might not know, what is Kilo? Okay, Kilo versus the city of New London was a big takings case at the Supreme Court where they took a bunch of, um, a neighborhood basically for a shopping mall, and the uh, people who like had their homes taken were like, well, that's not a public use. And the Supreme Court was like, 
as long as the local government thinks it's good for the public, it's a public use. And people were like, oh, no, that's not okay. <laughs> and passed an amendment in Washington state that limits it to public use. But we have a limited amount of information about what that means because it was relatively recent, by which I mean it happened in 2006, I think. It was when I was. It's been within the last several years, last decade or more. Yeah. Yeah. Which is new and new in long term. Yeah. Yeah, Well, and so you're talking a bit about um, the disposal of public lands, Mm -hmm. like the changes to those rules. Um, But you're mentioning that the city has to donate land. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Can the city build social housing itself on on its own public land? Uh, The city can build housing itself. I mean, the city has police power. It can generally do what it wants. I'm reluctant to have the city do a bunch of social housing because then people's ability to stay housed depends on their ability to stay politically um, politically light. <laughs> you suddenly yeah. import all of the city politics into people's very homes, and that's concerning. There are certain things that probably shouldn't be politically fraught. So... I prefer it when we use a cutout. Um, we've seen that recently with the Liberty Bank building, uh, Plaza Robert Matias and the Othello Project, where communities that have a big investment in keeping their community housed, which is pretty much any community, let's be honest, mm-hmm. have come together and bought tooth and nail to build affordable housing with help from the city uh, for their communities. This is the model I prefer because it keeps housing in the community. Right. So is your vision that the city provides a framework but um, provides the autonomy to the communities? Yes, I would really like to see the city's Department of Housing. It's already playing this role to some extent. And I was talking with somebody at the Department of Housing at the recent uh, Housing Week. Um, The average number of funders for a project is six. And that's just agencies. There can be multiple programs within the agency. So assembling the funding for affordable housing is hard, super technical, and absolutely a skill set where we should be building city infrastructure to help people who want to do this. Yeah. yeah. We can combine that with the new rules for property disposal so that we can take property, put it in the hands of communities who want to develop affordable housing. They can use that as their match for federal programs because it's an in-kind match. And we can get some affordable housing built if we can use some land and some expertise in a way that we really haven't had the capacity to do before. I would prefer ground leases to donation because that lets us tag in like absolute conditions, but also means in 100 years it comes back to the city. And I think in 100 years we'll probably still be interested. (laughs) (laughs) And a ground lease counts as a donation, right? So that you can lease the land, but still it serves as an in-kind contribution so it can be matched by federal funds. Absolutely. Okay. And to kind of help people that are listening to follow along, because we're all in the room (laughs) nodding, but I think all of us are like hyper immersed in housing policy. Um, When we talk about things like a ground lease, it literally is exactly, it's the words, it's a lease of ground to a developer or a community to build on it. But they pay, they give it back to the city or they pay the city a due or something like that to have the, kind of like if you're, um, if you're on a a mobile home and you have Mm -hmm. lot, lot fees, same thing. 
Mm-hmm. Or a slip if you have a floating home. Yeah, the same thing. So yeah. that's kind of like what we're all talking about when we talk about things like ground yeah. leases and we get into the weeds and stuff. And then, um, so this is, we talked a lot about housing from a Seattle perspective, just stuff we yeah. talked about to kind of like, we have a lot of people that listen in a bunch of other states. Is this stuff that they can noodle on and, and think about that might work in their cities? Or this is all this policy only unique to Seattle? Absolutely. This is something that is across cities. In fact, if anything, the restrictions in Washington state are more extreme and unusual. (laughs) Um, Other states don't have takings limitations. Mm. And the limit on land being donated for public use was really unusual in Washington state. Mm. And so most places don't even have the barriers that we've been talking about. Well, I mean, so speaking of that, Minneapolis has instituted like a radical approach to city planning. Um, I think they're kind of working to effectively eliminate single family zoning and increase like density limits throughout the city. Do you know much about the specifics of their plan? And do you plan on implementing anything similar? Well, Seattle just did it for me. Yay! (laughs) Hooray! Hooray! Well, okay, (laughs) let's be clear. Um, What we're talking about is the ability to have accessory dwelling units or detached accessory dwelling units granny flats, mother-in-law apartments, extra like little spaces within a house or just outside of a house. Mm -hmm. Um, There's nothing really super controversial about these most of the time. Um, In Seattle, we limited it to three. I believe Minneapolis has four. The reason that it is probably a really good thing Seattle limited it to three is four is when ADA uh, regulations start coming into play. And Seattle, unlike Minneapolis, has a lot of elevation. Very few of our single-family homes would actually be accessible because of the groundwork. What is ADA for the Oh, sorry. Uh, The Americans with Disabilities Act. Actually, it's the Federal Housing Act that that imposes the requirements. But people understand accessibility starts becoming an issue. You have to at least have accessible ground floor units when you hit four units. Okay. Um, So... When you're talking about a typical Seattle home, it is not on the ground level. You walk upstairs to get to it. So if you started doing a fourplex, you would have to suddenly do a lot of site work as well as building something inside of the footprint of the home or outside the footprint of the home. Yeah, yeah. we've got we've got NAR and clients up here. It's crazy. Yeah. I, if I ride my motorcycle in the city, I'm like, I'm, I'm idling like my front brake and my rear brake. I'm like, I, God, please don't slide backwards. Please don't do it. I've had worries at lights where I'm like, I will roll backwards and yeah. I yeah. will hit the person behind me. And it's perfectly normal in Seattle to have more stairs outside your home than inside them oh yeah yeah um (laughs) totally normal it's this is a a wild city and it's a struggle for people who do have disabilities so it is it's a difficult thing yeah that was a a city accommodation or a city decision to like kind of make it dealer's choice really and as somebody who has a wife who plays roller derby we have a ground floor apartment but it was not easy to find and i really worry about what happens if our landlord (laughs) changes their mind and we can't rent there anymore um but this, these little areas inside of um, our single-family homes are really important because that's what lets us start increasing density. Um, most of our single-family home neighborhoods, first of all, they didn't start out that way. Seattle didn't have zoning for a long time. We started having zoning when it started becoming a racial issue funny how that happens. I'm sure it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, there's lots of red lining. Yeah. But be that as it may, um, we have actually had a decrease in population in our single family home neighborhoods because 
families keep getting smaller. And this means we have a lot of neighborhoods, like, for example, in D6, we have Sunset Hills, which has a lot of beautiful homes that were built with six bedrooms, (laughs) which was a great size for a family once upon a time. But now is an awful lot for anyone to take on. Yeah. Um, And because it's not appropriately sized for modern families, it's too expensive and not and more home than most people want to take on. Having the ability to convert it into, say, three two bedroom units means more people can live there, but also that you don't have to tear down the home and build something else to have more people live there. I live in a place like this. Where I live was originally a single family home, and now, and the garage got turned into an ADU. The upstairs and downstairs got turned into two different places, and they built something on top of the garage. I live in what used to be the garage. So now 10 people live in what used to be a single-family home, Mm -hmm. and it's perfectly appropriate for all of us. Um, And that's how I can live in a place where it's easy to walk to the places that I need. So you're mentioning that like these um, kind of historically wealthy neighborhoods have been losing density. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings me to the mandatory housing affordability plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so Seattle implemented this last year uh, and essentially it, it changed zoning a lot of the core areas of the city. However, an obvious major flaw of it is that, you know, there's a lot of very dense neighborhoods that uh, got upzoned, adding more density where there's no land to build more things. Well, neighborhoods right next door, um, like Montlake and Madrona, which are below average density and seemingly losing density, didn't get touched at all. Um, As well, it expanded on the city's multifamily tax exempt program, which is kind of a a form of affordable housing um, through inclusionary zoning. Essentially, new apartments have to be um, have to have affordable housing attached to it. But as someone who lives in one of those units, uh, it really is pretty ineffective and has no teeth because the the income limit is too low and the rents are too high. Um, but can you talk about what's like good about the program and bad and kind of how it fits into your vision of the future? Well, this is one of those things that is very city dependent because I don't think anybody else would have ended up with a program <laughs> like mandatory housing affordability. <laughs> Let's start off with how it started out. It started out as a really simple idea, which is incentive zoning, which is we will give you more square footage if you make it affordable housing. (coughs) This is a really common thing that happens in a lot of cities. Seattle had an incentive zoning program, but the incentive wasn't good enough to make it economically feasible for anybody to take the extra units. Basically, what they said is we'll give you more units, if you build those as affordable and some of the others as affordable. And people are like, well, that makes no sense. (laughs) And because Seattle is Seattle, instead of just changing our incentive zoning program so that it made sense economically, we decided, oh, instead, everybody's going to participate in the incentive zoning program. (laughs) And that's what happened with mandatory housing affordability. We upzoned some areas in exchange for the upzoning, you have to build a certain amount of affordable housing or pay a fee in lieu of that upzoning. Um, it's a way to get some money in the system. And like right now, as weird as this program is, I support anything that gets money into the system because we need housing and the market isn't going to build affordable housing naturally. It's nope. Nope. It's a pure speculative market. Well, uh-huh. and it costs what, 18 percent more to build a luxury unit as um, compared to a bare bones unit. So mm-hmm. like the incentives just are not there. Yeah. 
um, when you're dealing with a market situation, you have to understand the market before you try to manip- manipulate the market or else you're going to end up somewhere yeah. that isn't going to get anything done, which is kind of what happened with our incentive zoning program. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this kind of weird beast, but it ended up going just inside the urban growth boundaries. And I live inside an urban growth boundary. I like that. And the nice thing about urban growth boundaries is it tends to be additive. The more people you add to an urbanized area that's already walkable, the better it gets because then you increase services and transit. Um, But it doesn't solve our main problem, which is that most of our city isn't dense. It isn't walkable and it's car dependent. Um, It also means that the places that you can build right now at any density you're going to be displacing people because our urban villages are also mostly built there isn't a lot of empty land and say where i live lower fremont and it's one of the less dense urban villages um so we have this thing where we're now requiring displacement pretty much because that's what building inside of urban villages mean Mm -hmm. We're not increasing the density of the places that desperately need density to increase to become walkable and less car dependent. And we have this weird payment in lieu mandatory housing affordability thing that we hope works <laughs> because there might also be a takings issue. <laughs> one, of nice. the favorite, yeah, one of the favorite things that uh, some people say is, oh, we should require them to build affordable housing. We shouldn't have the uh, payment in lieu. And I'm like... Ooh, there's Supreme Court precedent that says a cable on the outside of the building because it's a physical intrusion is a taking. Making yeah. people build affordable housing probably won't survive a takings analysis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so oh, like, man. it's a great example of how we can make things really complicated when they should be really simple. I would, I supported it because fundamentally at this point we need to support anything that will get affordable anything. housing. Yeah, but like, Incentive zoning should be a simple, easy-to-understand program. Mm -hmm. You get to build more as long as it's affordable. Um, We have the other problem with affordable housing in Seattle, which is that affordability, when you use federal money, is based on median household income. (laughs) (laughs) $161,000 in the city of Seattle just over us. Yeah. (laughs) Which means that a lot of our affordable housing, you're dealing with a really narrow window because they want you to have at least twice the amount of rent as income and you need to meet that 80 percent ami so for example the barracks out in magnuson park you have to meet 80 percent ami and have twice rent which means that like there's not a huge range of people who could live in that affordable housing yeah i mean effectively living in mft housing one of the things i see with it is people i know who are living in studios I have to still pay twelve hundred a month, and that's that's discounted affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Yet you can't make more than like forty three thousand a year. Which someone do the math for me because that doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, yeah. this, is, this is what it's like to live under rentier capitalism. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, for sure. And it's one of the reasons why I really want us to work on building expertise at the Department of Housing in all of these programs and work with community groups so we can get a diversity of solutions. Right. That's one of the problems that we tend to see with social housing built by cities is they hit upon a solution and they reproduce that solution a lot. And when we have more groups involved, we have a greater diversity of solutions. Some people might look at this and go, nope, 
can we put a ban on these four-story concrete <laughs> uh, square block type of uh, units that are everywhere in America? And I hate them. <laughs> I hate them. Well, okay. <laughs> we have design review in Seattle. And honestly, if it were up to me, we'd get rid of design review. <laughs> because like people are like, oh, I want things that are architecturally interesting and blah, 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 blah. But when you have design review, what you get is what's made it through design review. <laughs> <laughs> and generally, architects don't like repeating themselves, but they will if it's what it takes to get it through the process. Weirdly, because we have a committee that sits around and decides what our architecture would look like, we end up with a lot of architecture that looks the, like it's designed by committee. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. For anyone that just Google Maps, any like a random street in the city, just like use Google Street View and just like look around. That's all you gotta do. Yeah. And you know, like it's one of those great examples of how sometimes institutionalizing something gives you the opposite of what you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. yes. <laughs> Yeah. And so I, uh, I, do, I think you have one more question you yeah. want to go through, Mark. So Melissa, this is last question. Uh, this isn't related to housing at all, honestly. <laughs> but this is the thing that has excited me the most about your campaign because I feel like this is radical in the most common sense way possible. Um, and that is that you have talked about recognizing chosen families um, as instead of just your your genetic family. Can you <laughs> expand on that a little bit and tell me about that? We're weird as Americans, and one of the things that we value is family, and one of the things we other also value is self-determination. But the only way you can make somebody legally family is either marriage or adoption. And that's kind of weird. We limit our ability to have legally recognized families. Hmm. This isn't a big deal for a lot of people, but for people who didn't get a great draw of the cards when they got their original family, it sucks. Oh, by the way, the only way you can make somebody not family is adoption. Good to know, just in case. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I'm a, I happen to be one of those people well, who I, did not get a good luck in the draw of my family. Yes. So. <laughs> um, this goes back to my law practice. Um, I deal with a lot of non-traditional families, and it would be super useful for them just to have a way to say, hey, this person, not related by blood, but this person's family. That's an important part of building a healthy network for people. For example, kids who come out of foster care, they don't have what we see as traditional families. And if they get any, they have to build it themselves. But then they're in this era, area where they don't have legal recognition for the people who are closest and dearest to them. I really think that we should at least try having a next of kin registry because not everybody should have to get married in order to have the person that they want as their next of kin. And there's other relationships that are really valuable that could use that little bit of legal recognition that would be relatively simple to do as, as a city, especially now that we have databases. It might have been a much harder earlier on to like say, hey, this person is family so that when things happen, People who have families that they've made themselves, people who have what I call heart family instead of blood family, get treated the same. I totally agree. I mean, <laughs> my best friend is my uh, my next of kin on all my um, uh, death, my life insurance. Yeah. She actually gets the payout. So I lo I love my partner, but my best friend gets everything. She's been she's been my ride or die for years. So yeah, that's my girl who gets it. So I get that. That's really cool. I did not know that about your campaign until right now. <laughs> That makes me really happy. It's a big thing. It's very close to my heart, actually. Yeah, I do a lot of um, 
I do a lot of um, powers of attorney for medical care. And it's the closest thing we have, but it's a really limited power in a really specific situation. And one thing that the gay marriage debate has taught us is how many powers there are for being family that we take for granted or are just not available to people who didn't have that great draw on the first uh, toss of the cards. And I really, even if it's only symbolic, it's an important part of starting that narrative that your family is about who you love and about who shows up and about who does the work of being family. And I think that that's something that we can add to our culture, even if it is only symbolic in a database at City Hall, but hopefully we can expand beyond that. And a kind of validity I think is really important because we are a refugee city and the refugees are not just people from other cultures, which might not fit the narrow definitions of family under our European law, but also people who are queer or trans or come from a variety of different backgrounds where they might have had to shatter ties with the people who are blood family and still considered family under our narrow law. Awesome. Well, I think that is honestly like, I was going to ask like, what makes you different from the other two? <laughs> but I feel like honestly, I'm just going to tell you what I think makes you. You're in a very crowded race in District 6. And so I think the thing to me, just having, this is the first time I've met you in person. Uh, earlier today, I went through your platform. The thing, Honestly, to me, the thing that makes you unique is first of all, that piece to your platform, but also like your platform is very humanist and recognizes people. And honestly, you are hands down the most educated person on housing I have heard in the in any of all of the races. I'm, I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to take a step out and just say you're probably the the most qualified uh candidate oh, that, yeah. that is um, in the race yes like if you want to get lulled <laughs> out like yeah so that's uh, you know this is me telling everybody that's in district six yeah that's those are that's what makes most of difference yeah, i mean if i can say what what really drew me to melissa is that i have never met somebody who is so interested in the details and interested in people at the same time who understands the big picture and also what can get done on the nitty-gritty level and that's what we need in office we need someone who cares about seattle for people not Seattle for corporations, not Seattle for developers, but Seattle for people, the people who make the city great. Thank you. One of the things that really like as leftists, one of the issues we have is that we tend to like fiery activists who want to burn the system to the ground and like, God knows we need them. <laughs> That's me. Very important. Burn it down, boys. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to like policy and making the kind of tiny technical bureaucratic changes that implement good left policy, we tend to have a little bit of a deficit. And that's because like, that's not a natural fit for somebody who wants to be an activist. You, you want to have dramatic change and you don't care about the details. But having somebody in there who cares about the details, who can backstop the fiery activists is something that I think could lead to a really healthy dynamic on city council. I know I'm not the kind of person who usually runs. Like, probably part of it was that I got so caught up with the idea I can, I didn't think stop to think if I should. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but, you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been wonderful. And I wish more people had told me that if I run for office, I would sit down and have like these detailed, juicy policy conversations <laughs> with a lot of people because that's really exciting. Everybody knowing who I am is really kind of uncomfortable and I could do without. 
but like the policy conversations are totally worth it people that's the, honestly the two <laughs> things i love i'm like it's terrifying that i go to the gym and people are like you're sarah smith i'm like no yes what <laughs> and then it's also great to like get to talk weeds policy i love being like let me like when fox news is like how do we pay for it i'm like yes let's talk about that that's very important here's my plan yeah uh so i totally understand that feeling it it seriously resonates with me but it, melissa it, you're running in in district six in seattle for city council where can people find you so if they want to volunteer <laughs> or find you on social and just send you love where can they do that all everything that i have is under hall for six that's hall number four six spelled out it's hall for six.com i'm hall for six on twitter hall for six on facebook melissa at hall for six.com is my email please get in touch with me i would really appreciate it Awesome. Well, just thank look you so at the much. internet and think Hall for Six. Yeah. And something will happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for dropping in. Um, we don't tend to do fluff pieces. So for us to sit around the table and tell you we're really like you, so a thing we don't tend to do thank here you. at Better Lift Pod. Uh, um, can I do one more thing before we sign up? Of course. There's one more policy that I think is kind of unique to my campaign I'd like to talk about Sorry. it's uh, licensing property managers. Oh, okay. You know, what it takes to be a property manager is showing up at a company and getting hired. You don't have to have any education at all in the Landlord-Tenant Act, any education at all in, like, your duties. There's no way to discipline you. Um, if you do do something illegal, the remedy for the tenant is to go to court under the Residential Landlord-Tenant Act and seek a judgment, which will be against the landlord, not against you. So not having any regulations for property managers is weird. That is really weird, considering they govern, like, people's roofs over their heads and exactly. their lives. Yeah, they can evict you. Like, this seems like a thing that should be regulated. Well, And we all know that people facing eviction are totally prepared to hire a lawyer and go to court and skip oh, yeah, work. Of course. Yeah. yeah, as you do. Yeah. Yeah. So this seems like a pretty easy place to make some policy difference by having a personal license and personal professional responsibility on property managers. It's also good for property managers because at least some of them I've talked to have been interested in unionizing for a long time, but without a professional licensure or some sort of like barrier to entry, it's really hard to get that unionization. It's also really hard to say no to property owners when there are no really no consequences or personal duty. Um, I know we talk a lot about how to make lives better for renters, but this seems like a relatively easy to implement policy. Awesome. I love that. I think that's great. So that's <laughs> Melissa. She's running for six, uh, Hall for Six on everywhere. Uh, email, websites, Twitter, whatever it is, Hall, the number four, and then S I X. Um, so please check her out. She's running for Seattle City Council. A lot of the stuff we talked about, like I said, is relevant to anyone that doesn't live in Seattle. So do go over it once or twice and get, get shit done in your city. But thank you so much for joining us. I thank appreciate you. it. And I appreciate it. Good luck. Thank yeah, you. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Yay. That was awesome. Yeah, thank that you was so great. much. That was a really, 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 really <laughs>